his debut book, Skyscrapers of the Midwest, was nominated for an Ignatz Award. His book, Driven by Lemons, is a challenging and deeply personal exploration of unstable psychological states. We talk about how creating Driven by Lemons informed his breakout book, Not Away, which was on many top 10 lists in 2016, and how reading a random article about the transference of consciousness into an electronic medium provided the spark for the Not Away series which is this massive, expansive story that considers the reductio ad absurdum possibilities of that sort of still science fictional but increasingly more plausible technology. He says that he wishes he could find the specific article that sparked the idea for Not Away, but also seems to suggest that it's less important than just being open to the things in the world that are going to click with you. Incidentally, I really like the way that he admitted he can't exactly explain how his stories develop. He says it's mostly intuitive and compares his creative process to a rock tumbler, in the sense that there's this necessarily indeterminate process of refining your ideas. One of the things he notes, and I think this is relatable for any artist or writer, is that he now feels more confident with his rendering of this epic story, and that he attributes that level of confidence right now that he feels to the experience of being in one place, in a fixed space with a reliable routine. That might not work for everyone, other people might be a little bit more nomadic, but I'd say that I, I function in the same way. The second installment in the Not Away series, released in 2021, advances the plot in exhilarating ways. To give you a sense of what the books are about, since I really tried to avoid spoilers in this interview, here's a summary from Multiversity Comics. Not Away is set on a near-future version of Earth. A deep space transport has been developed to take a small crew to an Earth-like habitable planet in a nearby system in an attempt to begin colonization and repopulation. The internet is now telepathic and referred to as the internet. When the hub is revealed to be a human child, Melody McCabe is hired to develop a new nexus to replace that human hub. The books are really beautiful, and I asked Cotter a number of questions about his specific cartooning style. The wireframe chaos that has become sort of a trademark, for example, is rooted in a dedication to representing psychological states that can't be expressed in words. It was amazing to hear that while these panels seem to be frenetic and out of control, they're actually conscious, controlled experiments in abstraction. We talk about how those choices are always in the service of the story, despite the temptation at times to lean heavily into the aesthetics of splash panels and spectacle. Overall, he says the goal is to explore the true costs of technology without resorting to a kind of didacticism. I think the books definitely do that. There are these suggestive ideas embedded in the book surrounding technology, you know, the way that it can act as both a source of escapism and serve as a site of destruction at the same time. I'm very excited to speak with you about your work. Um, I'm a huge fan. And uh, I just today rewatched your conversation with Noah Van Skyver. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just, you know, obviously trying to pick up on some things that maybe I could run with a little bit. And, you know, the, the one thing that really stood out is this, this moment where you talk about using the, the medium of graphic storytelling to process social change mm. uh, and the events of recent years. Like you talk about how cartooning is a way of, or maybe not precisely cartooning, but, you know, art is a way of problem solving on paper, which is a phrase I really liked. Um, 
And so like reading that insight alongside your book, Driven by Lemons, like I can see how often you're engaging in exactly that thing of like trying to problem solve on paper. Um, and you're like really drawing the reader in to your own experimentation, which is, I think, a characteristic of your work. Um, it so, is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it's it didn't start out intentionally. So I, I didn't start making comics uh, thinking they would help me um, sort through my issues. But working on my first book, Skyscrapers of the Midwest, I found that that's what it was doing. Uh I was, I, you know, we, most, most of us have childhood issues. And, uh, I found that by, by put, by working through them on paper and, uh, writing and drawing, it kind of got it out of my system. Uh, mm-hmm. so from that point on that, well, after skyscrapers, I've, I had some, I had some, uh, mental health issues and I was really just struggling. And, um, I, I was like, well, skyscrapers worked for childhood stuff. Let's see if drawing helps with, um, with this and it, it seemed to, so I, I, I'm, I, I'm just going to keep going with it. <laughs> yeah. Like, and I like, it's clearly driven by lemons is, is, you know, cathartic to read. And I can't even imagine what it must've felt like to like pour that out. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it reminded me a little bit of like Michelle Gondry's film about Noam Chomsky is the man who is tall, happy, you know, which is like this grandiose animated documentary. Like, oh, I, don't, I don't believe I ever saw it. Oh, it's fantastic. Gondry gets obsessed with Chomsky's work and decides I need to make this film to visually capture these abstract ideas and try and make them relatable. You know, I see you doing a lot of that kind of free play in your work. I do do that. And yeah, not, not a way is kind of my way of dealing with not only my issues, but, but, uh, getting a handle on, um, many world issues as well. And if, you know, not, I can't, we, we can't do anything about it until we can make sense of it. And there's a lot of nonsense and confusion, especially in the last couple of years. Uh, and, um, it's, I don't know if I figured out anything yet, but I, I feel like I'm getting a better handle on what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I totally want to come back to, you know, this idea that in some ways the not away series is like, for me, a parable for like the information age in many ways. Like there's, there's so many connections to, uh, contemporary problems that you're working through. But to stay on this kind of question, I guess, of messiness and abstraction, um, mm-hmm. I love this tendency in your work to include just like chaotic wireframe images mm-hmm. all over the place. And it like I didn't realize it, it like kind of originates. I don't know if it originates, but you're doing it in Driven by Lemons. Yes, it did. It did origin, originate. Yeah. Uh, it's a way of, it's a means of expressing psychological states that aren't necessarily uh easy to describe with words uh and i, I found that it, it, that's what it is for me and i don't know exactly what it communicates to others hmm. um but it, it is it is trying to explore deeper psychological states uh rather than just the facade of uh, something that's happening what's going on underneath and uh it's I mean, of course, I enjoy drawing that way too, mm-hmm. uh, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it while I was doing Driven by Lemons, and I wanted to incorporate it into future work. And I've I've found a way to allow to bring abstraction into my work without it seeming coming or being too indulgent. I wanted it to have a narrative purpose, and uh, that's my intention with the abstractions and not a way. Yeah, what's clear to me, at least as a reader, is that you're trying to experiment with more or less rendering fractured consciousness as like not yes. just 
not just like a doomed state, but almost a kind of like psychedelic state, a state of like transubstantiation where you're not quite yourself, you know? And there's no control with, with yeah. the body. We have so much right. more control, but when it comes to the mind, uh, and at least from my experience, there are times where you can't control your mind and mm-hmm. there's a lot of frustration involved with that. And, uh, yeah, so it's it's a it's a way of representing representing those those things that can't that can't be handled objectively. Uh, I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what it, it questions what objectivity even really like is. True, true, true. And you and like you're clearly leaving room in your work to I think be surprised. Like I, I've heard graphic novelists sort of just you know talk about this. You you work I I know like you know, in a very controlled way, but then there's still this room for like improvisation and, and like surrealism and all this stuff. That's and, the balance I was yeah. trying to find. Yeah. Right. Like it's hard, to, it's hard to sustain that. Um, <laughs> and yet, like, there's this moment too, in the interview with Nova and Skyber, where you say like in those moments of abstraction, you're letting yourself be more free. It's like this decision to be more free. And I guess like when you're actually drawing those pages, you say you really enjoy it. Like how frenetic is the actual work of making those pages? Is it more controlled than it it's, seems? It's very controlled. It's is it, okay. uh, it starts it starts out objectively. Uh, well, it started out how I how I came to those types of drawings in the first place was uh, while drawing. I uh, many artists, myself included, tend to start generally and work towards specific. And generally, you 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 start with gestural drawings uh, to 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 just ca- ca- attempt to, an, a quick attempt to capture the energy and form of your subject. Uh, and then you build up uh, on top of that uh, to more specific. So uh, the object or a subject is, is representational, but I keep it in the gestural stage and I work it over and over again uh, mm. uh, until m- much of, much of what is included is no longer recognizable. Mm. Um, uh, I got off track with the, the initial question though. Oh, it's all good. You know, and, and we can keep kind of running with that really, you know, like on this point, there are these uh, beautiful wiry panel frames toward the end of volume one of Not Away mm-hmm. that make uh, uh, like conscious use of negative space. Mm-hmm. I guess I want to ask, like, does it take as an artist a kind of courage to leave areas blank? You know, do you have a specific philosophy when you use negative space like that? It does. Uh, yeah. I don't know about courage. But <laughs> it. I know what you mean because I. I come from the mad. The mad school of drawing. Right. Uh, the Will Elder, the Wallace Wood, where every every possible square you know inch is is filled with detail, and I've, I I enjoy mm-hmm. that. And I, I. I I've been as I've studied as an artist, uh, grow, uh, growing as an artist, I've realized the, I've learned to appreciate the importance of negative space. Uh, mm-hmm. so if you compare what I'm doing now with some of my early work, you, you, you'll, I think you'll, people might find it a little more, uh, a little more breathing space in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 uh, I, th- I, I do, I le- I've realized that negative space can contribute to the narrative and overall um, uh, feel of the book itself. And, mm-hmm. and uh, with the second book taking place on earth uh, with in, in primarily in the Midwest with its wide Midwest U uh, S with its wide open spaces, I found an opportunity to, uh, to experiment more with negative space. And, and yes, it, it, it I'm out of my comfort zone when I'm doing it, but uh, working on volume two, I, I found uh, that, my work can benefit from that as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'll jump ahead because I want to ask actually about like certain stylistic choices in Not Away 2. Like, 
you know, you, it is set on earth. And so you have the, these opportunities to kind of, um, you know, create what in film would be called almost establishing shots. Mm-hmm. And what you're like, what I think is interesting about your book and, you know, other people do it to some extent, like I think of Seth or, or people like that, like you're, you actually choose to place those establishing shots in these really small panels a lot of the time. <laughs> and so there's this like playful minimalism where you want to kind of like, you want to dive into those small panels to make them kind of fill up your field of vision. And I was looking today at your Instagram and you have a preliminary sketch from not away volume three on there mm-hmm. that seems to continue that technique. Like how did you maybe develop that Were you know, and was there ever a temptation to make these beautiful landscapes, big splash pages to appeal to the reader? Or was that what you're trying to do? I think I have to, I think you have to do whatever serves the story. Uh, there's temptations to do more splash pages, like in not in volume two, I did allow that, especially at the beginning when I was establishing Chicago and having, uh, the, uh, the bodies float into the city. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's an opportunity for those large, to indulge myself in those larger drawings. But there are also times where I need to make sure that it's not overwhelming the story. Like it, it, it can establish the shot, but it doesn't need it. And it's all, it's all entirely intuitive. Uh, as I go along and I'm drawing these things, I'm like, what serves the story best? And whether I'm making the correct decision or not is, you know, it's, it's left up to the reader. But uh, yeah, I would love to do two page spreads all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just enjoy letting loose and doing these large drawings, but yeah. um, it really it comes down to what I feel serves the story best. Right. And in terms of the story, like in, in this sprawling sci-fi opus, like you, you talk about how the inspiration for it originally came from a scientific article on this future possibility of transferring the human mind to a hard drive. Now mm-hmm. I don't want to like enter spoiler country and like, divulge what's going on in the story for those that haven't read it and everybody should read it because it's so much fun but you know you talk about how like that article opened up all these possibilities for you it was it was a click it was a click moment definitely i i I honestly it was it's probably been 15 years since i read that article and i wish i wish i knew what it was because there there have been a number of articles written since about Mm -hmm. the uh digitization of consciousness uh and you know with uh experimentation with uh reading pigs thoughts and stuff it's it's we're on our way to happening but yeah it's uh it was certainly whatever article that was and i was reading scientific american at the time so it's good it's a good possibility it was in there Mm -hmm. uh but um it's uh yeah it's uh i guess you can't control what's going to click with you and that and that moment i realized that i want it's something i i I felt really interested in i wanted to explore more uh, and did you feel like you is, and did you feel like you kind of saw the whole story like in that moment? Or oh, was, no, 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 not in the yeah, moment. You, you I just, just piqued your curiosity. Yeah, yeah, that'd be amazing if that happened. Wouldn't that be, yeah. <laughs> That's not uh, how it works. So. It was a, yeah, it was a very long process. And right. really the, the story started out of, uh, the story started out with anthropomorphic characters like uh, skyscrapers. And I, I realized fairly quickly that I, I wanted to tell the story in a different way. So it developed... I started like getting ideas for it when I read that article and I'm guessing that was 07, 08. And I just kept a separate sketchbook where I, where I jot down ideas and stuff and, and explaining how stories develop has always been difficult because it's so complex and it takes place over such an extended period of time. But it was, it was very much a slow building process. And after a couple of years of, of thinking it over and and looking at ideas from different angles, then, then the story, the not story of not always started taking form. 
Yeah, I mean, um, you don't want to put the cart before the horse. It's going to come from the process itself. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of it comes from just the process of sitting down and and, and not just sitting, not just actively working on it. But I, I, I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, but I, it's like a tumbler, a rock tumbler, and I, I, I in my head, and I throw all these ideas in there, and they kind of sometimes they get polished, and I can see them better, and I see how they fit together with each other, and it's just sometimes it just takes. Uh, letting things roll around in my head for a while. Uh, and mm-hmm. then I find that things even start falling in place if I give it time. And then like the result of it is that you put in the work to produce this book and then kind of almost ironically, it's read in a flash, right? Yeah. Like, They're read quickly. But the, the point of it is, I think like, you know, graphic novels as a visual medium are analogous to the film in the way that they do give us a means of, kind of doing this thought experiment, right? As, as viewers, as, as an audience. And, and so like what you're exploring in not away is really like, yeah, the, the, the possibilities of maybe, I mean, like people like Dmitry Itzkoff and the 2045 initiative, like it's about trying to achieve immortality by transferring consciousness. You know, Westworld is a show that in sure. part is, is trying to figure out um, how to render this narratively. And like there's books, you know, academic books, like in human power, um, that are about like artificial intelligence that say like those thought experiments are really important in terms of like helping audiences do the work of imagining yeah this like future possibility right yeah yeah and and I I don't I don't consider my work so much as predicting uh, like like a uh, like an Arthur C Clarke sure there could be uh, like you know technology that resembles psychic activity in the future I I, I from what I'm understanding it, it's it's quite possible but you know we're, we're nowhere near that technology yet but it's more it's more i get i get i create myself uh, to use a hollywood term uh, a sandbox to play in and the, yeah, this yeah. The, the having those res- restraints those borders of, of to work in but uh i'm getting off track scott i'm sorry i, I do that sometimes <laughs> no uh, <laughs> but i i want to pick up on your love of science fiction right like i love the genre i love the genre yeah yeah, yeah. I, th- I see so many like really difficult problems being grappled with the fact that, you know, in book one, Eva is a young girl and she's the sort of condition of possibility for streaming, you know? And, right. and to me, like thinking about that in relationship to other like patterns in sci-fi, like I see a direct connection to stories like Ursula K. Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas or Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer, even things like Ender's Game. There's a new, there's a book in the new Star Wars High Republic multimedia project called the light of the jedi that Mm -hmm. uses that same trope of like exploiting suffering as a means of driving some impossible technology i guess i wondered like thinking about these patterns what do you think is so enticing about that concept in science fiction is there something maybe about that moral problem that people were so fascinated by i don't know i think it's well i mean i can't speak for the others i don't know where they, they but for myself it's it's a commentary uh in a way uh as on on what we're already experiencing i mean we, the technology we enjoy uh mm-hmm. I, it comes it comes it comes, it comes out as sounding pretty bad but I, it's the truth in many ways that the technology we enjoy is built on the slave labor <laughs> it, it, which is essentially slave labor of of people mm-hmm. around the world and it's something i'm conscious of like i i need a computer i need a phone to get through the modern world but i'm also very very conscious of using these objects and 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 the way the people that make them are treated. So there, there's that aspect too. And it, there's, it's not just that, but it, the technology we use today is, it, 
we're a very privileged nation in the United States and, and much of North America is. And uh, uh, we don't often think about what some of the true costs of our technology are, especially uh especially uh, cellular phones or, or mm-hmm. large, sc- large screen plasma televisions or whatever else it's uh, someone might be suffering for our pleasure. And that it's something I tried to stay conscious of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Marxists call that reification. You know, you kind of uproot the thing you're using, you're consuming from the whole supply chain. But you know, what's interesting of course about the pandemic is how the supply chain has become kind of visible to us, you know, very like, much. Yeah. It's yeah. something I've been thinking about a lot and, and, and it's, I've, I've tried to consume even less. I mean, I was, I was raised a consumer. I was raised to think it was for not, I'm not, not necessarily my parents, but just a, in society that sure. this was how things were done. And, and, and with the, uh, climate crisis with with people not being paid livable wages it's uh and so on and so on and and now of course being forced to go out to work and risking their lives for stuff that we don't really need for the most part mm-hmm. it's something i'm very conscious about and in the last couple of years like you said it's become much more apparent that these systems uh they're you know they 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 uh maintain systems of inequality and mm-hmm. it's uh we're still a part I'm not, and I say that as uh, criticizing it as I am a part of it, but I'm right. kind of with this book is another thing I'm working through is like, how do I take a step back? How do I not participate in a system that's harmful for others? Yeah. I mean, um, it's so it's virtually impossible not to be contaminated by it, right? You're implicated by it. And really? what I, you know, what I love about your books is like, there's not uh, the sense that you're like, aloof and above these things, right? There is this sense that you're implicated, but also it's not particularly like preachy or polemical. It's, it's all very subtle. Like for example, you know, the eternity space station, it's not clear whether that is privately or publicly owned. Right. In the context of like, you know, our, uh, moment, you know, I, I thought a lot when, when kind of reflecting on that, about this weird contemporary space race among billionaires, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, yeah. And like, there's so many things that I sort of saw these resonances with, like, there's a moment early on in volume one, where a conservative talk show host is questioning their guest on the possibility of terrorists and hackers, exploiting Chinese the internet. terrorists. Yeah, yeah, it's straight up <laughs> out of like Trump vilifying bite dance and all this stuff. You know? Exactly. And then that's the thing. It hasn't, I can imagine it being like that, you know, in the decades to come. I, I have a tendency to want to be didactic. Uh, and uh, I, I resist that because especially with social media and over the last decade where like we, we confront each other with these like statements of like of being right. And it's sure. the state it's the state of humans needing to be right that I, I am very curious about. And I'm also exploring because we can't all be right. And I, I, again, I, I guess it goes back to concepts of right and wrong being a very human thing because there really is no mm-hmm. such thing it's like whatever goes against my belief system is wrong so uh i guess i guess i'm trying to explore many of these things in a less didactic way by by making them more subtle by by presenting rather than uh shoving down someone's throat i think it's a better way to make an argument there was a book i read recently called uh not recently it was last year called the uh the understory uh and uh, he oh, makes yeah. a, it was about it's about the the, the, the potential of ecological uh, collapse. Mm-hmm. And um, he makes a point that in it that like if you want to change minds, you need to tell a story. And that, that really stuck with me because like, I, I think that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to. Well, I, th- I think that's what any any really great 
stuff over the years has has done movies films music or whatever is it changes it changes people's minds without without letting them know that that was what's going on you know yeah 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 um absolutely like i think like we're we're seeing the ways in which didacticism like there's a limit to its effect absolutely right and and so like i think that's why like i love the opening scenes of not away two where walt and aveline are are like having this philosophical conversation and Walt says, like, I feel we have a responsibility to be reasonable, to believe mm. in facts and so on. But it's like, it's clear he's not, he's not like certain of that idea. It's like no. something he has a sense of, you know? Yeah, I, I used that scene to express kind of the core philosophy behind the series, that, that whole roof scene. And I knew that was the point where I was getting a little wordy and there's basically a 10 page conversation and I might lose people. So I figured the only way I could make that work is if they were drunk. Because, uh, of course, drunk people, yeah. you know, you, you get talking about philosophy all the time. Totally. So, yeah. But uh, enthusiastically. <laughs> enthusiastic. Yeah, yeah. Enthusiastic philosophy. So that scene was my way of of kind of putting forward the the philosophy of the series, but, but doing it in a way where it seems just like a couple intoxicated people conversing. And the other thing to me that makes that scene so believable is the fact that there there's sexual chemistry. There's this complex sexual chemistry. It's, it's libidinally mm-hmm. charged. Like you can, the way in which Walt's gaze is depicted <laughs> viewing Aveline's body. Like, and, and this is something that I see in both books. Like, there's a sense of how sexuality mediates in relationships that seems really sure. crucial for the books. And like, I have this, this theory specifically about the plot point in book one of serious hiring conventionally attractive people. <laughs> like my theory is that he does that. Cause you can just drop that into the story. Right. Uh-huh. My, my theory is that he does that so that they'll be distracted by one another and will just like passively accept what he's doing. That's quite possible. That's uh, I see. I see where you're coming. I'm not going to say anything because because the third the third volume does uh, return to Sirius and his assistants. Uh, right. So, uh, but uh, I'd say I'd say that's a that's a pretty pretty good theory. You know, just thinking internal <laughs> internal to the story, like what's going on, right? At the same time, there is that there is that sexual aspect mm-hmm. uh, or the uh, sexuality in the books. Which if people reading the books, they may not actually catch on. But there is, I think it's it's a very huge, enormous part of human behavior. Yeah, yeah. Reproduction on a biological level, uh, sexual reproduction is our biological purpose. If if you want to get down to like uh, a natural, you know, level of things, not not to say that people need to reproduce. This, this is these are totally, you know, yeah, but yeah. as far as far as as far as biological functions go, I think much of what we do is in service of sexual reproduction. Which you sound a little bit like Oscar Isaac in Ex Machina, <laughs> like the way that he talks about sexuality. Of course, he's like a villainous character. Yeah, he, he's like almost weaponizing that notion of of human sexuality as a way of, you know, creating this asymmetrical relationship. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think I think a lot of people do. Totally. I mean, think about yeah. how much sexuality has been weaponized and how much has been used for for the the incredible propulsion of capitalist systems in just the last century. You know, yeah, it's a uh, sex is a huge part of it. But it's like I'm also I'm also grew up on a farm in the Midwest, so I'm always nervous about like showing nudity and stuff. So you know, it's it's complex complex on my end as well. But I do re- objectively recognize it as an important part of the human experience, and so it's 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 always there among my characters 
And that I gotta say, like that's sort of what's uh, you know funny about the ways that the books represent bodies. Uh, you know, like the the cover of the first book mm-hmm. that was uh, you know an interesting choice. But it's not it's not like comic book cleavage, if you know what I mean. Like it's not like I Marvel over the top hyperbolic implausible cleavage. Instead, there's like texture and physicality and corporeality that you like, given the textural nature of your style, maybe inevitably are going to, you know, that's going to be how you represent bodies, but they're not clean. There's nothing clean about them. No, and that's, really like. I was a little nervous about putting Melody nude on the front cover because I thought it might mm-hmm. be perceived as sexual objectification but my intention is on the cover is all seven volumes the protagonist of each volume is going to be nude and i'm going to show them warts and all you know and that's show them and if you go from the front which is the physical aspect of the person to the rear which is the psychological aspect of the person there's kind of a spectrum there on the cover so my intention was to show the character of each volume in their full spectrum and uh Mm -hmm. but yeah but yeah it's uh i the the there's there's that aspect of comics that tends to be the mainstream comics where it's just all very sexually suggestive poses uh jumping yeah. over a, uh, the camera point of view so you have this like spread spread legged shot with like heaving cleavage and that that stuff just doesn't interest me i i prefer i prefer to look at the human body as realistically as possible and uh my yeah. my work my work's not meant for titillation, I guess is uh, whereas mm-hmm. whereas some work is intended for titillation. Sure, um, and similarly, I think like the violence, the moments of pain and suffering, like there's nothing indulgent really about them. You know, like they you're you're trying to often just convey like the actual material impact of what's happening, and and you know the reader feels those moments of violence really intensely. Which is surprising given the the pen and ink style, right? You're not I was, using color. There's a there's a I know there's a tendency when drawing uh, violence to get gratuitous, and I make I make a conscious effort to not glorify it, not not do anything which would make it look cool or you know fun. Right. And it's like I it's because violence isn't I I. I, I, it's fun to watch in films and stuff, but I uh, for for many people, but I personally wouldn't want that visited up in my upon my own life, and I right. and I, I I want to I want to treat it as objectively and realistically as possible, because otherwise there tends to be a romanticizing of violence, I think, and uh, and that can be pretty dangerous. Yeah, and you know I I you know I've kind of done a one eighty in my own you know because I. I grew up as a teenager really worshiping, you know, um, films like natural born killers, like all oh, sure. Stone films. Yeah. Tarantino, Tarantino, whatever. Yeah. Tarantino just this visceral, visceral cartoony violence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but now, you know, it, it, there's, it's okay. I think to reevaluate culture from the perspective of, uh, a kind of, um, you know, hardline pa- pacifist or nonviolent stance, you know? Well, um, yeah, yeah I mean, assume that it's going to produce violence in the world, <laughs> but to maybe not just acquiesce to violence as spectacle. Like, yeah, yeah, it's not just spectacle. It's something happened to actual people. And that's what I'm trying to convey. Whereas, yeah, the other are movies where p- people are being gunned down by the dozens and it's like, they're just objects in this film, uh, you know, mm-hmm. but, but when I'm dealing with real characters and, this book, I decided uh, early on, especially that I didn't want to glorify it at all. I wanted it to sh- to I wanted there to be human impact after the fact that it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, 
there's a dreaminess to the sexuality. There's a certain a, a, a blunt viscerality, certainly to like the violence, the damage done to bodies. Um, mm-hmm. But then there's also, I think, like um, a way in which like you're trying to uh, sink the reader deeper into uh, uh, the li- lives of these characters. And one character in particular I want to ask about, mm-hmm. I, I want to know if you have a name for this this character that runs through both books that i call the mystic <laughs> who is on this this journey in an un- unknown landscape oh the man it, in the desert the man in the desert is he that does, what you call him yeah. that's, that's that's what i'm calling him now just okay. in my notes <laughs> he sure. does have he does have a name uh okay. the name but i won't reveal it because it will be it, it will be re- it will be revealed in the third book but i don't know what he's doing you know <laughs> he's he's yeah. definitely he's definitely He's actually fairly central to the story. Uh, I think so, yeah. Uh, and he's and I my my decision was was I'm going was a way of having a second story at first in the books that maybe seemed unrelated, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm working to a point with the seventh volume. The seventh and final volume will be about him, and uh, then we'll learn everything about his background. So right. everything's kind of leading up to his story. Awesome. Well, I I mean I pr- I feel like I shouldn't ask about him then, but. Um, <laughs> You know, the, the one thing I guess I want to, uh, you know, I can't help but ask is, you know, and how I how I imagine you're going to answer this question, I don't know. Why do I see him as a mystic? Is it potentially about that famous adage from Arthur C. Clarke that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic? I think so. It's like, you know, because he's navigating a, a landscape that doesn't feel like it could be real. You know, yeah, and I, and I and I think I think that's a I think that's a good possibility because the, yeah. that uh, Clark that was another uh, you mentioned er, I mentioned earlier about mm-hmm. how uh, psychic technology uh, is quite possible, but well, it would appear to be psychic. Of course, it isn't. It's all done with electricity, but it would seem like magic to us if it was suddenly to be dropped into our laps. You know, uh, and then with this character, he's uh, yeah, you're right. I got to find a way to ward things without giving anything away, but. Uh, I'd say the mystic is one way, you know, it, it's a fine way to look, look at it, look at him. Uh, but as far as like, he uses some technology. Uh, yeah, that's right. But uh, yeah, I don't know. As far as your point of view goes, I, I, I can't, I can't say. That's uh, fair. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask a more specific question about the mystic that is about sure. book one. Like the, he, and I think he does it in book two as well. He's watching a commercial for mm-hmm. detergent on repeat. Mm-hmm. And like my thoughts drifted back when I read those scenes to the way that Eva uses Franklin to zone out, mm-hmm. uh, seemingly to serve as like an internet hub. So like that's leading me down a whole rabbit hole, that connection. Um, yeah. And the focal, the focal points, I think we all have our focal points with technology now. It's a way, right. of, it's a way of, of taking a moment to take a break from the, mm-hmm. the, the difficulties around us. And that's why so many people are spending their time staring at phones or tablets because there's, well, it's hard to say that there's less pain there because a lot of the mm-hmm. times they're going to Twitter and Facebook and those places are pretty painful, they uh, but they can be. Yes. But I think there is also escapism involved and it's just another form of escapism. Uh, yeah. The, the, the mystic I'll, I'll refer to him as that uh, <laughs> the mystic uh, there is a narrative purpose behind the commercials. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with with uh, Eva uh, also being a, a fascinated with Franklin, I think I think that aspect comes from uh, my own 
my own tendency and I think a human tendency to to focus on something that yeah. uh, helps you get through something you're going through. Yeah, yeah, just an alleviation of an alleviation. Of, like, of, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a way of alleviating pain without taking you know drugs or something. Yeah, and that ironically kind of allows your brain to function. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, exactly. Your brain yeah. needs that. But uh, I wanted to you know ask about like uh, just as a storyteller, uh, and this is kind of switching gears. How you think about naming uh, the the series itself comes from wink and blink and a nod. Um, and, and a few other know, things. I thought of the Pixies song, Gouge Away. Gouge like, Away? Air of aloofness and spaciness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with naming, I've actually resisted it because I feel like I resist giving things too much definition. And maybe that's one of the reasons why I went with cats, anthropomorphic characters early on is because the more you define it, the less chance you have with a person making a connection with a character. Right. Uh, so, so with giving naming something, you are you are definitely uh, giving it a, a very certain definition, and it will have an effect on the reader's mind. So, but I knew writing a book of the scale, this size, with so many characters, I was going to have to name characters, and uh, a lot of times I I, I use alliteratives uh, to c- continue with the uh, the the comics aspect. Is a lot Walter of my, W. Walker? Yeah, uh, <laughs> Meldy McCabe, exactly. It's Franklin like, Falk. Lo- lo- yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I tend I tend to use a lot of alliteratives, uh, mm. but I also use puns and uh, even some names describe the character mm. in a way, or they describe what's going to happen to a character in a way. So, yeah. uh, I, I'm still resistant to naming things, but I decided if I have to do it, I I may as well have a little fun with it. Um, to, yeah, to, yeah. To keep myself, because then if you if the names are atypical, it and when I use a lot of atypical names like Savvy, Iota, um, Serious and Ernest. Serious. I feel I feel it. I feel it. Those specific words mean something to a person, and they and they won't, or to many people, right. and and they won't limit. Uh, they won't limit how the audience views the character. Yeah. Like if I named if I named a character Chad and someone hated a Chad, you know, then then the, that character. Saying. Yeah. So it's like yeah. It's I think I think that's where I. I came from from naming because my 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 uh i don't really care to do it in the first place it's something i've, I've had to make myself do yeah, well naming is like it it limits for sure what can be said in a way right or what mm. what can be felt about a character okay. um you know like the the way in which like I, I wanted to kind of use this maybe as a segue into discussing how these books address religion i mean like you know religion uh, uh, spirituality is one thing, but when you start to like name and categorize and d- denominate specific mm-hmm. forms of spirituality, that's when, of course, we get into uh, enormous amounts of trouble, like war and and yeah. conquest and colonization. Um, you, you know, your book, I want to say, for me, lacks clear enemies and heroes. There is like a certain moral ambiguity in the universe of Not Away, but I think religious groups get the most serious criticism uh in some sense well um, yes and i and i yeah. i i'm I, I grew up in the christian church so i have right. many many strong thoughts on christianity especially how christianity is used today uh mm-hmm. i believe i believe a number uh, stuff like this can get me in trouble but i'll go ahead and say it, a number of christians don't actually follow the teachings of christ mm-hmm. uh, 
and I can't speak about any other religion, but I feel that since I was raised Christian, um, and I know what the teachings of Jesus Christ are, uh, I, I, I can, I'm fairly certain that the modern Christian isn't, it doesn't have anything to do with Christ. Not mm-hmm. every Christian. I and mean, that's, that's a, that's a thing I have to say is Trump used police to walk across the street and hold up a Bible. Like, that's exactly, certainly, that, that, yeah. Trump is not a man of Christ. Exactly. Right. So there's an it, immolation of morality happening there. So, so my, my concern with religion and my criticism of religion is using it as a weapon rather and using it for hateful or, or mm-hmm. uh, negative means. And, spirituality is is everybody you know we all have our own thoughts and views on spirituality but but how religion is used it tends to be divisive and that's not that's not the purpose behind religion and and uh, if there was some way we could get away from this we would have far fewer wars my criticism my criticism with organized religion is it usually allows people to justify hurting others, I think, in, in many, in many ways. Yeah. I, and I wonder, you know, how it'll develop in, in the coming books, you know, like there, if, if book two has a hero, it's perhaps Aveline. I mean, she, in the opening pages is so captivating. Um, and, and you, you, well, I won't spoil anything, but you know, she, in those opening pages is explaining that religion and other, she seems to suggest like uh, virtually any other sense-making structure, maybe mm-hmm. nationalism, uh, inhibits the flow of energy, what she calls vibration, you know? I um, believe it does. So. You know, that's a kind of spiritualism that is about rejecting the naming and categorizing of spiritualism. So, well, and that's and that's what religion is: is we is people have name put names to things that don't need names. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 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 a very obviously a very human thing to label, and uh, and uh, to to say God is this or God is that or heaven is this or hell is that. No, it's no one knows. You know, it's it's no one no one knows. And to say say with certainty is uh, it, it, that's what leads to conflict. Because every everybody has different interpretations. Yeah, and I, you know, I love that the this second book is set on Earth because, like, to me, you know, that's that's if there's a legitimate source of spirituality, it's this idea that the that we are that we can't precisely know the Earth, you know, and and so like when the mystic finds his way after a near fatal fall to an <laughs> opening, a rock face that is unmistakably vaginal. <laughs> he, it's as though he is returning to the womb like he is he is encountering like the uh, the alterity of the earth you know he is uh yeah i i i uh i i did and i the the cave opening is indeed vaginal i and that was partially due to all the phallic towers that were around there but uh yeah, he uh, he. Well, I can't expand too much on that one, but what he he does he does find what he's looking for in the cave system. Cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> you've been really, really generous with your time. I just kind of want to ask um, questions about like the, like the physical act of doing the job that you do, you mm-hmm. know, um, you know, first of all, the project is so ambitious. Um, you know, it's this, this huge mind bending project, you know, where you are the person that is responsible for producing it is not, it's not a film in development hell somewhere. It's a lot. It's all you. And, and you told Novan Skyward that you're, you're conscious of the whole George RR Martin thing. Mm, um, I am. That that maybe it won't be feasible to get it all done, especially given the elaborate detail and the painstaking design of the pages. 
I want to ask, like, how do you ensure you don't destroy your body while drawing? Like Glenn Gould used to soak his hands in hot water before performances. <laughs> you know, Creota Wilberg has that book, Draw Stronger. Do you have like a, a regimen that keeps you? Well, I'm get, I, I am getting older. I'm in my mid forties now and I'm, and I'm noticing the damage I've done to my body when I was younger. Cause when I was 20, I would hunch over, sit on, you know, squat on the floor, sure. cross my legs while I was drawing, whatever. It didn't matter. And, and, and now I realize if I could, if I could tell any young cartoonist starting out what to do is just sit straight up, still a good posture because so what I do now, yeah, I have to deal with it. So yeah, I, Throughout this book, I think my back went out four or five times. Uh, and of course, that keeps me in bed for another week. So I have to find ways to keep working. Right. Uh, and yeah, it's just my hands, they seem to be doing fine. Okay, fine so far. My eyes are starting to go downhill. My, my glasses are getting thicker and thicker every time I get a new pair. And But uh yeah, basically, I'm driving my body into the ground with comics, but it's <laughs> but for our benefit. So yeah. Well, I'm enjoying myself too. You know, it was it was worth it's it. It's got to be rewarding. It yeah. is. I'm very I'm very happy with how the book's turning out, and it's a uh, just the whole the whole path of being an artist has 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 been. I'm really glad I've chosen this path because no matter what it's doing to my body, it's. I, I, I couldn't have spent my life any other way. And the rewards it's brought brought me and not beyond monetary. To, and as, as with comics, there, there really are few monetary rewards. But as far as like the things I've, I've been able to experience in my life because I've started making comics, it's, it's been entirely worth the damage I've done. Uh, well, that's great to hear. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if it's because I was reading the second book digitally but mm -hmm. it, it just felt like your your style, your 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 like it really feels like you're you're moving in a more, um, you know, like exp if not experimental, just a more confident direction. Like you really have a lot of like control. I'm personally feeling that control and confidence. And I think a lot of it's coming from just finally being in one place and having a place where I can mm -hmm. work and not I, I I'm I I've I. I rely a hundred percent on routine. And if my routine's uh, disrupted, I'm, I'm a mess. Mm. Uh, so living here on the farm with my wife and kids, we, we have a pretty much set schedule and we're able, of course with kids, it's not always set, but uh, I, 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 my point is, uh, is I attribute um, my, the confidence I'm finding in my work. I attribute that to being able to just do it every day and not have to work mm -hmm. a, a, a part-time or full-time job and, uh, and just really just dedicating myself to it every day. I don't know. I just confidence without being, uh, without being, I, I don't allow too much pride in it, pride into my heart because <laughs> mm -hmm. I think it can be a little dangerous, but I, I objectively, I am very happy with how things are going and I attribute that to being able to focus. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I can't wait to see book three. Um, yeah. Thanks, Scott. I'm, I, uh, I've been writing it for nine months now and I'm just pretty much wrapped up with the writing. So, and like you said, you saw some sketches today and I'm mm -hmm. just kind of getting my hand warmed up and ready to dive back into the world. Mm -hmm. Well, thank goodness that, you know, Fantagraphics found you or you found Fantagraphics. Um, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> I'm very love... fortunate. Yeah. The Fantagraphics, I've been, I've been, a. I've been a fan of the uh, the company since I, you know, got into independent comics in the '90s. So it's uh, it's been kind of a lifelong dream. And I, the main reason I, I talked to Fana was I knew Ad House wouldn't be a, around much longer, and he already did announce he was closing down last year. So, uh, so the move to Fanta has ended up ended up being a good move, and uh, I'm glad I'm with them. They're they're behind me 100, percent and um, and 
as long as my hands keep working, my eyes keep working, my back keeps working, I'm going to finish the series. Awesome. Uh, thanks again, Josh, for making yep. the time. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me.